This is Three Interesting Things. Hello and welcome to Three Interesting Things, a weekly podcast where we discuss the three most interesting things on the internet this week. I am your host, Don Grant. Joining me today, journalist and science reporter for The Atlantic, specializing on the space beat. Joining me all the way from D.C., Marina Corrin. How are you doing, Marina? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? I'm good. So now, space didn't start out to be your beat, did it? You kind of stumbled upon it? I did, yeah. I actually used to be a politics and breaking news reporter. Okay, so I have to know the etymology of how that you went from politics and all things earthbound all the way to space. What was the sequence of events that led to that? Because it's a fascinating little little way to go. Right. Well, I mean, I, I have known that I wanted to be a journalist since high school. So every job I did was trying to get, you know, into the field. But I started out at the Atlantic on our news team. Uh, but I've always had an interest in space science. I don't have a science background whatsoever. I think I got a C in biology in high school. Um, <laughs> but my dad is a big space nerd. Right. And he's, you know, he's always talking my ear off about that. And so when a job opened on our science desk, for specifically a space writer, I just jumped at that and have been learning ever since. So your dad must be thrilled. Oh yeah, he loves he loves reading my stuff. <laughs> and he was pretty skeptical years ago when I was like, Hey, I wanna be I wanna be a journalist. And he's like, Okay, well, you know, because it's not exactly a field where you get very rich. But he, he's much more supportive now, I think. Wait, journalism isn't a growth industry? What? This is the first no. time hearing of this. Huge breaking news. <laughs> now, I a couple of weeks ago, I had uh, Sam Key, a journalist or author and a science author on the show. And I asked him a, a question that I'm going to ask you, which is now that you have a new administration in your country, which most people would probably say is a bit more friendly to the sciences and to knowledge in general. I'm going to guess that you have a fair amount of connections in the science industry around DC and other places. Is there a palpable sense of, I don't want to say relief, but of maybe an, of a new dawn? Do you know what I'm trying to say? I'm, I'm asking the question awkwardly. I do, yeah. And I saw a tweet by someone, and I can't remember who it was, um, but they imagined that at the EPA, people are standing up and shouting into a room, <laughs> climate change is real, just to see how it feels after <laughs> the last four years. And I imagine that something similar is happening for a lot of scientists, not just climate scientists. So now that you've been on this beat for a while, what would you say is the hardest thing about being a reporter who reports specifically on the field of space? What would you say is the biggest challenge? Uh, my, my guess, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. I'm going to, I'm going to take a, a stab at this and say that it might be that it's easy to be blinded by how cool things are. You know what I mean? And that, you know, you are at heart still a reporter. You still have to report on the layers that are underneath and you have to try to be a reporter rather than a cheerleader, which I'm sure is difficult when it comes to the idea of space because everything's just so damn cool. Yeah. Deep down, I'm still a reporter, but I would also say it's not that deep down. I don't really get that excited because there's still that reporter brain going on where I'm like, you know, that I have to cover things objectively. But at the same time, I've been to a couple of launches down at Cape Canaveral. I saw the Falcon Heavy launch in 2018. It's hard in that moment not to be like, wow, that was right. pretty cool. But then you go back to um, doing what you're supposed to be doing, which is covering this really big and growing company and holding them to account. So I'd say there's two difficult things about space reporting. One is understanding 
the science. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for someone like you and, and like me who does not have a science background, I would imagine that, that just grasping the science is a little bit tricky because people would assume that since you are the space reporter that you would have this tremendous grasp on these things. And I'm, I'm assuming you just like me are sort of like, wait, explain this to me like I'm in grade six because I, I just want to get through this. That is literally what I tell sources <laughs> on the phone um, because The Atlantic, our audience, um, you know, they're not technical. It's a general interest magazine. And there are a couple of space reporters on this beat who do have a, uh, a science background right. and it's like, I, I, I'm jealous of them sometimes. And I think what people, what my readers don't see is that I will spend a couple of hours understanding one very specific astronomical phenomenon, all to just boil it down to a tantalizing technique <laughs> in the final story. Like, <laughs> but, um, but in the sense that might actually serve you better as a journalist, because then you end up being the reader surrogate, right? Like you end up being the version of what the reader is by, you know, the, the general interest reader like me, like probably the listeners to this show and, and, and readers to you do not necessarily have that high level of expertise when it comes to things like space science. And so by you having to go through that process, you have a, more of an empathy with the person at the end of the equation. That's what I like to think when I'm on hour two of understanding <laughs> something very complicated. I mean, that's one of the best parts of the job is that I get to go deep and learn something and then kind of forget about it as I move on to my next story and then maybe return to it. You know, I think I can write a bit with a bit more authority on black holes than I might have three, four <laughs> years ago. Um, but the particulars, I mean, it's not just a matter of expertise. It's also a matter of knowing what your reader is going to care about. And most of Atlantic, the Atlantic's readers are not going to care about the nitty gritty technical stuff. Yeah. They want the big picture. What does this mean message? Yeah. I uh, We're going to get going in just a sec. Before we do, um, one of my favorite facts about Cape Canaveral, I, and I'm going to assume that you know it. And if you don't know it, I will just be tickled pink that I let a science or a space reporter know one of my favorite facts about Cape Canaveral, which is that the area code in Cape Canaveral is... It's three, two, one. Oh, countdown. and it was deliberate. It was deliberately chosen to mimic the <laughs> countdown sequence. Did you know that? I, well, as soon as you said it's three, two, one, it's obvious why. But I haven't. Yeah. I haven't called anyone in Florida in a while because I haven't been doing <laughs> a lot of travel for obvious reasons. So right. yeah, I mean, now that you say that, it's obvious and it's fantastic and good for them for asking for that specifically. That's just great brand marketing. I know. And then they were thinking about it way back, I guess, in the 50s or 60s, whenever they when they came up with it. But I just I just think that's fantastic. Anyway, are you ready to do this? I am. I'm ready to go. There we go. Thing one. Thing number one. What happens to Space Force now? You wrote about this, Marina, in The Atlantic, uh, because as unless you've been living under a rock for the last couple of years, you know that one of uh, former President Trump... Oh, I always like to pause because that sounds so good. Former President Trump's uh, favorite uh, projects was Space Force, which he came up with. But the interesting thing about Space Force is that its origin and its demise and its progress is not as easy as one would think. Right. Yes. And Trump actually didn't really come up with the idea himself. A lot of people don't know that. So so where did the for idea of Space Force first come from? A lot of people don't know. And in fact, I had someone on the show, I guess a couple of months ago, who was a former uh, air, he was in the Air Force. And he was talking about how ridiculous Space Force was because uh, essentially the Air Force took care of all things space before this. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. I right. mean, it was, it was spread across a couple of military branches, but predominantly it was the Air Force that did that. Right. Yeah. So now what, where did Space Force first kind of come from? Before we get to where it's going, let's talk about, because Trump was not the first person who thought of this. What, what's kind of the origin of where this came from? 
Well, the idea of having some type of dedicated armed service devoted to space systems, satellite systems really started to develop in the 1990s and maybe even before that, just because the U.S. military was depending a lot more on satellite communications and spying essentially during wartime. Right. Um, and so people started talking about it. And even, you know, in 2001, there was a big commission that recommended, okay, maybe someday we might need to have a dedicated service, but that was kind of forgotten. 9-11 happened. Um, people had other things to worry about. But a few years ago, the idea resurfaced again in Congress as a space core. So something that would be small and housed in the Air Force, but uh, just basically recognizing that maybe there needs to be some type of outgrowth of the Air Force units that were doing space stuff, essentially. And so this was floating around before Trump even took office. But once he glommed onto this idea, it just became uh, its own its own entity. I mean, you can see why he was so drawn to it. He was someone who is, you know, obviously very media savvy. And the idea of this space force is very sexy, is very sort of media friendly because everyone thinks about it in almost cinematic terms. But space force in itself is, in fact, quite far from it. Number one, it's the only branch of the military that has pretty much only one weapon, at least one acknowledged weapon, which is a satellite jammer, which doesn't even da damage the satellites. So <laughs> it's kind of funny to say now that he's gone, where does this go? Because a lot of people would have assumed that with Trump no longer in power, that Space Force would go away. But that's not the way it's going, is it? It's not. Um, and, and the Biden administration has said that they will support the work of the Space Force. I think that's, again, something that people were not expecting because there is a, a knee-jerk reaction anytime there's a new administration, especially uh, a, an administration with a the opposing party, that the new president will roll back whatever the previous president did. And Biden is certainly doing some of that with Trump-era policies, but he's not going to be doing that with Space Force. And part of the problem here is that like you said, Space Force itself isn't very sexy. The name might sound fun, and Trump definitely realized that. Every time he mentioned it at one of his rallies, people cheered and applauded. And I think you saw the other day, we're reopening NASA. We're going to be going to space. Space Force. Space Force. So we have the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, the Marines, the Coast Guard. But we have the Air Force. Now we're going to have the Space Force because it's a whole... We need it. And he was a president very concerned with his legacy. So the ability to do this kind of first was very appealing to him. Right. But the more he talked about it, the more he basically misled the public about what the Space Force is doing. You know, it's it's a bunch of professional military professionals monitoring satellites, managing and operating space systems. You know, they're not going to space. There's no astronaut corps within the Space Force. Right. And so what the new administration now has to do is kind of rehabilitate this image that Trump set up. Yeah, he I mean, he kind of implied and sort of painted it in, in his own vague general terms as a bunch of space cowboys floating around, you know, shooting down big, bad laser missiles in space. When, in fact, its first troops that had just been deployed were deployed to the Middle East and they're supporting combat operations that rely on space systems. That's what Space Force does in a similar way to the fact that most people who are flying drones over Pakistan are actually sitting in air-conditioned pods in 
you know, Kansas or wherever. Right. Yeah. And and I talked to some Trump administration officials who were working on standing up the Space Force and who winced every time the former president brought it up at a rally because the more he talked about it, the more he politicized it, the more he made the work of these people within the branch probably difficult. Um, and there's a lot of enthusiasm within the Air Force uh, of people wanting to transfer over to the Space Force and build a new identity, a new culture for a new military branch. Now, one of the things that you sort of touched on in your piece and, and that I, I kind of want to clarify because I think it's a really good point is the difference between uh, Space Force, Space Command, and for that matter, NASA as well. If you had to explain to you know a 12-year-old a, a the difference between Space Command and Space Force and NASA, what would be the easiest way to explain that? Right, right. And part of the confusion, we have to thank <laughs> Trump himself because his administration sent out a bunch of um, logo suggestions for the new Space Force that had Mars on it. <laughs> no one in the Space Force is going to Mars. So NASA is a civilian space agency that has little to do with what the Space Force does. The Space Force is a military space organization. Right. Um, the Space Force trains and equips its service members and the Space Command, which is a military combatant unit, <laughs> kind of manages space operations. It doesn't do any of the training, any of the, here's your new uniform, Space Guardian, you know? Right. These are three separate entities. Obviously, Space Command and Space Force have a bit more overlap in what they do. But NASA, and I think this has probably been a little bit of a headache for people at NASA, they don't have anything to do with the Space Force. One thing that I find fascinating, and um, Kelsey Atherton in, in Slate Magazine was talking about this, a, a piece about what Biden should do with the Space Force, which is that there's a profound choice to be made now that Biden has has inherited this thing, which is that is space a commons to share or is it a territory to defend? Because depending which approach of those things that you take, you're setting up the future of what this organization is. If it's a commons to share, obviously the rest of the people who have a foot print in space, which is, you know, already European space agencies there and China, China is definitely growing their footprint there as well. Or if it's going to be a territory to defend, that's going to impact how people design what goes on in space. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And I think, I mean, it's going to be a while before we hear Biden talking about space policy, whether it's military or civilian, you know. Yeah, there, there are a few other priorities in the meantime. Yeah, just a couple. Like, I'm not sure what they are, but I think, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, it has varied um, how many months after inauguration, a new president comes out and gives the Kennedy speech, you know, the big speech about space policy, I think is going to be a little bit longer before we hear that from Biden. I could see his administration leaning more into the um, let's protect space as we would the national park. You know, this is an important uh, environment to think about. Um, let's play nice. And I think it'll be easier to do that now because for the first time in a long time, you have SpaceX launching astronauts to the ISS. And I feel like that's something that came up a lot in Congress, whether you they were Democrats or Republicans, just the need to stop relying on Russia to do that kind of thing. So it might be easier now to do more of the, like the kumbaya, let's play nice together in space narrative when you've got a lot of spaceflight capability back in America. Because I mean, the way the way that Trump talked about it, like he like he would say things like this is a quote from him. He said, we must have American dominance in space. So important, which is easily the most Trumpy Trump quote of all 
the, the Trump quotes in the world. But it was always about American dominance. We must dominate. We must do this. And obviously, Biden's going to take a bit of a different approach. But at the same time, certain people are going to be saying, hey, you know, it's it's uh, the thing that it kind of reminds me a little bit of is the Arctic, right? I mean, in, in that you have this, this territory, which is of, of dubious ownership in various and sundry places. And what do we defend? And what do we share? And what do we have? Am I crazy for making that comparison? No, I think that's a great comparison. You won't hear Biden saying we have to dominate low Earth <laughs> orbit. Um, this is extremely important. But I think one that one thing that is unavoidable, whether it's a Democratic or a Republican president, is the rhetoric about American exceptionalism when it comes to space travel. Right. Like, of yeah. course, Biden's going to say that America is best at this and that. Um, how that translates specifically into how America plays with other countries, I don't know yet. That's an interesting question. Thing two. Which is your article from The Atlantic about America's new vision of astronauts. Now, here we are in 2021. And now I'd say the main change, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that it's not just NASA who is choosing who goes up into space. Right. It is SpaceX. It's companies like um, Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic. Of course, if you count going to the edge of space and back, going to space. Right. Um, this is a completely new and and very weird era of American space travel, I would say. And um, yeah, the astronauts don't look like Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin anymore, and they don't necessarily have to work for NASA. I, I just want to read a quick bit of your piece because I think it's really great in terms of summing all this up, which is, these are your words, the question of who can be an astronaut has never been more open-ended. Half a century ago, the people who decided who went into space worked at NASA and other space agencies. Now they're people rich enough to see the beauty of Earth against the darkness of space for themselves and rich enough to decide who should come with them. We've known for a while that you have European Space Agency, we have other uh, governmental space agencies, but I, I guess no one really thought back you know in the in the 50s and 60s and even into the 70s that there would be a time that the Elon Musks of the world or the Jeff Bezoses of the world would have enough money that they could run launch and have their own space essentially their own space agencies right and i think no one thought that maybe 10 15 years ago because it wasn't so <laughs> long ago that SpaceX rockets that Falcon 9s were blowing up on the launch pad or in flight. And That's right, yeah. you know, people were saying this is never going to happen. I think for me, what really changed things and the moment that I thought, okay, this is really going to happen is when uh, Elon Musk launched his Tesla into space on the Falcon Heavy. Because before that, the things that you know, humankind launched into space were really meaningful, and I'm doing air quotes that people can't see, but you know, they would mm -hmm launch yeah. something like the golden record and put so much thought into it and, and say this represents humanity and here was elon musk launching a tesla it's fun. Do, do we know what music they put on those lps that they sent up into space back in way back way like it'd be fascinating to know what it i was. remember i think there was some chuck berry in there and then oh, okay. they also tried to include music and sounds and melodies from other cultures and nature sounds I love the fact that they would have assumed that an advanced civilization would have a 33 RPM player. I don't even have one of those anymore, so it's it's fascinating. Um, so in this piece, you talk about what makes an astronaut now versus what made an astronaut then. Of course, an astronaut then, we can all think about the right stuff type of astronaut. We can think about the Mercury 7 astronauts. They were all white 
They were all men. They were all crew-cutted. Uh, most of them were from Air Force or some sort of branch of the military. Uh, this has drastically changed now. What would you say the main changes? We talked about the fact that it's obviously people with money. But even when it comes to NASA, it's changed, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, women can go to space now, too. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Well, that's the funny thing is that there. I, I remember uh, uh, reading a, a number of years ago that biologists and various other people working for NASA said that, in fact, if you're going for a large mission, especially a long mission, it makes more sense to have female astronauts and all female astronaut crew would be a more intelligent choice for a number of reasons, not the least of which is that you would have to pack less resources. Women would be consuming less food. Women would, would need less physiological resources than a group, a group of men would. Yeah, like, I think the last couple of years at NASA, they've really shown the value of having diverse crews. Yeah, I mean, NASA has changed alongside the country. For example, the civil rights movement and the women's rights movement in the 70s um, really opened jobs up to a lot of people who were not white men. And the same was true at NASA. Right. So, um, you know, one recent example of the change was a it was actually still under the Trump administration, but NASA announced its its uh, group of Artemis astronauts. These are the people that are going to train for a future moon mission. And there were 18 astronauts and half of them were women. Mm. And a good number of them were people of color. And of the eight women, five had already been to space. Right. So that just goes to show how much the astronaut corps has changed one of the main things we're seeing now is an increase in private citizens. Of course, private citizens have flown into space before, but they've always gone on government-owned spacecraft, as you said, and they've had trained astronauts by their side. In this piece where you're talking about sort of what makes an astronaut now, you mentioned the fact that later this year there is going to be uh, on SpaceX an entire mission that has entirely civilians, no astronauts whatsoever. Is that right? That's right. Wow. It's one of the weirdest space missions I think I've heard of and other people might have heard of because it involves raffles. It involved a Super Bowl <laughs> ad. It um, basically <laughs> a wealthy billionaire who made his money in tech basically has chartered a crew dragon capsule and is going to choose three people to come along with him. So one is going to be a health worker. He already knows who she is. He hasn't told the public yet. Um, the third passenger will be chosen from a random raffle. Like basically you donate, the money goes to St. Jude's, your name is entered into a raffle and you'll get picked that way. And the final passenger will be picked through an online business competition similar to Shark Tank <laughs> contests. So none of it sounds real, but all of it is very much real. And the, um, the, the billionaire who's chartering this mission, Jared Isaacman, he has no space flight experience. He's never been to space. He's a pilot here on Earth, but he is effectively, he, he's going to be in charge of these people's lives in addition to his own life. Well, and that's the funny thing, right, is that we can look at Elon Musk and we can look at all these private companies and we can say, oh, this is, you know, the, we are now in a new area of spaceflight. But it can kind of lull us into a sense of complacency. No, I mean, spaceflight is still a very dangerous endeavor. We, many people have died in this process and it could easily happen again. Yeah, there's definitely that false sense of security. And when um, Bob Behnken and Doug Hurley, the two NASA astronauts that flew last year, um, that the first people that SpaceX ever flew, when they came back home, their heat shield it showed some weird, you know, 
damage, a little degradation that people weren't really happy with. And I talked to a number of people who worked at NASA during the Challenger and Columbia disasters, and they said that when they heard there was some damage to the SpaceX heat shield, the, they just got shivers. Because right. it, it reminded them, and it, it should remind us all, that spaceflight is not routine. It is not safe. It doesn't matter if you're a professional astronaut with 20 years of experience or a nurse going up on one of these capsules. You're taking the same risks. And heat shield was the problem with Columbia, correct? Yes, right. And so that was, you know, it was, it was 17 years ago, but a lot of the people who... Many people who worked at NASA at the time are still there and have actually advised SpaceX. SpaceX employees have gotten regular briefings about both shuttle disasters and the Apollo 1 fire that killed three astronauts. Like, they're, you know, NASA people go to SpaceX and say, here are the lessons we learned. Right. Make sure you know them. It's funny. You know, I, I would consider myself a, a, a relatively educated person. I think I generally am. I, I'm not. I, I'm, I'm an idiot, but I don't like to sound like one. I did not know that Jeff Bezos had a space organization. I did not know about Blue Origin. I, maybe I should have, but I did not know about this. They fly a little bit under the radar compared to space. No pun intended. Definitely not a household name, but it is something that Jeff Bezos will probably spend a bit more time on now that he's stepping down as CEO of Amazon. Right. Blue Origin is his passion project. He is a space nerd i also didn't i didn't know that that virgin galactic was still sort of operating and, and running flights i mean they you know it's it's a little bit different because they're sort of they're doing sub or suborbital right they're not going full on into orbit but i didn't know that branson still had virgin galactic legitimately operating and taking people up into space air quotes right yeah they've had a couple of um test flights and i think branson said that he wants to go himself sometime soon but yeah that's a, a completely different not a completely different field but like you said these are suborbital flights blue origin is going to do the same thing it's a type of space tourism but it's not going to be like this spacex mission which is going to go on a couple of orbits around earth if only nasa had something else big coming up in the next week or two. Oh, wait a minute thing three Thing number three, Lil Percy the Wandering Robot. That's how I'm gonna, <laughs> how I'm gonna <laughs> put this. You and I are recording this on February the 11th, and a week from yesterday, or is it no, a week from today? It's next Thursday. The next Mars rover, Perseverance, is going to be landing on Mars. This is going to be live. I think it's going to be, isn't it going to be around like three in the afternoon, Eastern Standard Time? Then you can, you'll be able to sort of watch it as live as you can watch it with something that is on a 15 minute delay. Right. Yeah. Very exciting. I did not know that that was going to be the time. I'm glad it's not in the middle of the night. I'm just focused on filing my story. I wonder, you know what, I wonder if that was part of the plan too, right? I mean, I wonder if when they launched it, they thought about that. They thought, okay, let's make sure that we get it there in prime time in the middle of the afternoon. Well, I mean, that's a lovely thought that they might have coordinated this landing with when people might be awake. But as someone who has had to wake up at 3 a.m. to make it to a 6 a.m. Cape Canaveral launch... I imagine, this is cynical, but I imagine orbital like mechanics and considerations had a bit more to do with it, but it's, I, you could be but right. it's very you exciting. Well, let's talk about this because Perseverance is now, this is, I believe, the fifth, this is the fifth rover that we have sent to Mars. We had uh, Sojourner, we had Spirit, we had Opportunity, we had Curiosity, and they've all had varying amounts of success. A lot of people don't know that since the 1960s, only 40% of missions to Mars have succeeded. 60% uh, of them have failed. We don't hear too much about the failed ones, but uh, only 40% of them have succeeded. There is a lot that could go wrong with this, but... They seem to have stuck the landing, you'll pardon the pun, for the last couple. Can we expect the same this time around? 
I think so, but I'm so nervous about jinxing it. The bottom line is that NASA is very good at landing on Mars, has figured that out. Um, right. It's still risky. Something could still go wrong, but I'm not too worried. <laughs> well, let's talk about the landing for a sec, because the landing itself is really quite fascinating when you see how they do this. When it was uh, Curiosity in 2012, um, they tried a parachute, and they had a descent vehicle with kind of a sky crane maneuver, which is going to be the same thing they're doing this time. Before that, they had this really with, with I think it was Opportunity, that they had the, the air balloon system. Is that what it was? It might have been. I'm like, there's been too many rovers down. <laughs> I just, it's hard to keep track. <laughs> I know. It is very, very hard to keep track. There was one of them, and I'm going to say it's opportunity and if i'm wrong i'm going to cut it out of the show so if you hear it then i got it right um that when it landed what it did was it sort of it was padded in all almost this massive kind of soccer ball of airbags that kind of bounced around the surface and then they deflated and the rover came out with this uh sky crane maneuver it's really fascinating it's basically and you can correct me if i'm wrong a parachute comes down i'm doing this with my hands and the viewer can't the viewer the listener can't see this but it's really really great um a parachute comes down with the descent vehicle and then the descent vehicle is almost kind of like this you know lowering itself slowly to the surface but it doesn't go to the surface it kind of hovers several meters above the surface and then lowers the rover from a tether do i have this right i believe you i'm honestly i'm not i don't know about the specifics of the landing i'll be honest with you because my job as a reporter is to focus on like the the very new interesting thing about it and because nasa has been so good at landing rovers i'm like oh they'll get it down in one piece <laughs> let me focus on the science objectives of the mission so whatever you just said i completely believe oh okay well, i can say a whole bunch of other stuff then uh no well one of the other new <laughs> things is that they're doing this thing called terrain relative navigation and the way that that's going to work is that it's going to take pictures on the way down and if it senses that the landing site is not as picture perfect as it would like to be it actually can maneuver itself to another site so now if you are familiar with kind of the the new things in this particular rover number 24601 what should we be excited about that percy's got on board that we have not had before yeah, I think, I mean, I think that technology is huge because the Martian surface has taken down rovers in the past, has really worn down their, um, their tires and, and gotten them stuck in sand pits, you know. Well, yeah, even Opportunity, I think Opportunity was the one, it had 14 years of operation and then there was a dust storm. And That's of course great. it was, it was solar powered and all of the dust covered the solar panels and it just died a slow death on the surface of Mars. Right. It, it was very sad. And, and so I think it's exciting that the Perseverance rover is coming with the most sophisticated technology to date to really try to protect itself from the elements as much as it can. Um, it's also bringing along with it a helicopter, the first helicopter to fly on Mars and potentially any other world, um, Ingenuity. And so that's a bit more of a risk. NASA has never done anything like that. And so this is more of a technology demonstration. It's going to hop around the surface and just kind of check things out. So that's pretty exciting. Yeah, I found the helicopter really, really cool, not just because of the fact that it's a helicopter, but if you know anything about Mars, you know that the atmosphere is very, very, very thin, right? So if you think about just the logistics of flight, how the hell do you fly a helicopter through this atmosphere that's so thin? And apparently the two ways that it's being done is number one, it only weighs four pounds, right? The, the, the body of it is about the size of a softball. But then the other thing is that the rotors on this little helicopter spin are about 10 times faster than a typical helicopter. So they're going to be kind of slicing their way through that thin Martian air to try to get uh, a certain amount of grip and send it up as it makes its way around. But if it does make its way around, obviously this is a huge thing because, you know, this particular mission, Perseverance, 
the purpose of this mission is really to start to pave the way for human exploration of Mars, which is pretty exciting when you put all of that together. Okay, I'm going to be jaded again. That's oh, a no. that's a very common NASA party line. You know, every Mars, <laughs> every robotic mission to Mars is paving the way for human exploration. Hey, you're the space reporter of the two of us. I cut, cut through the haze. Get go for it. I'm here to be the party pooper and say that the human exploration bit is still quite a ways off. I think what's very exciting, another part that's very exciting about the Percy rover is it's um you know, it's science objectives that it's going to search for signs of life. Well, I mean, this rover is doing pretty much the same thing that the previous rovers were doing, right? Is that it's doing basic robotic field geology, right? Wandering through Mars, drilling cores, which we'll talk about in a second, because that takes us back to another piece that you wrote about. And Perseverance is going to be doing that as well. It's landing at the Jezero Crater, which is apparently the site of an ancient river delta based on all observations that they've made, which is the reason why it was chosen. So because that could harbor signs, as you say, of fossilized microbial life. Right. So scientists hope that there was some life in this ancient riverbed three billion years ago that, um, you know, obviously eventually died and became fossilized and well-preserved. And that's what they want to find. And actually, that's the Percy rover is designed to um, store some of these soil samples in canisters that they will that will just be there until a future NASA and um, European Space Agency mission is going to come back, get them and bring them back to Earth in a sample return mission. Right. So it's, it has this sort of this sample collection and caching system. So these these drill cores that they're going to be getting are, I guess, about the size of a pencil. And as you say, are going to be retrieved by later missions. Now, this takes us to something else that you talked about in another one of your piece, which is the difficulty in drilling into Martian soil. Now, I read your piece Break it down for me, because they had problems just sort of, there was this thing called the Mars Mole, which was trying to drill down and get into it. What troubles did it run into? What's the problem? Because if you think about Mars, you think about dust, you think about loose soil. Uh, Why would they have a hard time drilling into this? Well, one important thing to note is that this probe, which was on the InSight lander, is not the kind of drill that's going to be used on the Perseverance mission. Uh, The Mole is a self-hammering spike, (laughs) and... (laughs) This is another one of those things where I was like, okay, how does this thing work? But it, the bottom line is that it doesn't work like a drill. Um, and so this mole was supposed to kind of burrow into the Martian surface and get pretty deep in there so that it could um, take with it this tether that was embedded with sensors and the sensors were going to measure the heat in the interior of the planet. This was basically supposed to be a Mars thermometer, thermostat, whatever you want to call it. Sure. But it turned out that the soil at the landing site was different than what anyone expected. They thought that when they stuck this mole into the ground and it started burrowing, that soil would fall around it kind of like sand on a beach, and that would provide friction that this mole needed to just keep going. Instead, the soil was kind of sticky, and it pulled away from the mole and created a bunch of space, pretty much nothing all around it, and deprived it of any friction that it needed to keep burrowing. I get it, got it. So it acted kind of like cement in a little bit of a way, or yes. And they even, yeah, the the scientists think that there might be some type of salt in this in this soil that is making it act a bit more like cement. Now, we are shortchanging Percy a little bit because we talked about a few of the things on board. Obviously, they have 
a million other things. There's 23 cameras. You can guarantee that starting next weekend, you're going to start to see some really beautiful, sexy pictures of Mars. There's a ground penetrating radar. There's the helicopter, as you said. And then the other thing that they have, which I think is really fantastic, is this tool called Moxie, which let's try to bring a little bit of hope for, you know, human exploration of Mars, because Moxie, what it is trying to do is extract oxygen from the atmosphere of Mars. The atmosphere of Mars is about 96% CO2. And this little thing that they have on the rover is going to be trying to extract oxygen for that for a future mission. Yeah, that's true. Maybe I was too pessimistic earlier. Oh, no. Hey, you're you're allowed to be pessimistic. I'll be, I'll be the I'll be the yay, yay, rah, rah guy. You have to sit through all the, the briefings and, and report on all this all the time. I just get to sit back and watch the sexy pictures from Mars next week. Right. Yeah. And it, it is true that a lot of the or some of the science that these rovers do is meant to inform our understanding about how people would do on these under these conditions. And I believe that the Perseverance rover is actually carrying with it a couple of basically swatches of different types of materials that could be potentially used in future Mars spacesuits. Yeah, I read that too. They're sending pieces of a helmet and pieces of a spacesuit just to sort of leave them there and see how well they hold up when they go back in 10 years and check them out. Oh yeah, that didn't work out well. Right, and I think that's actually very cool because, you know, there's a cool image there of maybe someday Mars astronauts visiting the Percy rover that is long dead and wearing potentially right. one of the materials, and that's what's keeping them alive. There's something <laughs> definitely romantic and exciting about that thought. One of the things I found fascinating about the extraction of oxygen from the atmosphere of Mars is that most people think it's needed for humans to survive on Mars, but the, one of the main things that they're going to be needing oxygen for is to get back home, is to fuel the rockets to get back home. The, the, the amount of oxygen needed to fuel a rocket to get from Mars back to Earth, I believe the scientific term is a crap ton of oxygen. And so in order for them to have that much oxygen on Mars to get back, they would actually have to launch several missions and several rockets from NASA again and again and again and again to get that oxygen to Mars just to bring the astronauts home. It's complicated. <laughs> and I think that's why the that's why one part of the sample return plan that NASA has is particularly interesting because in order to get these samples off the ground that Percy is collecting, they need to launch for the very first time from Mars and return to Earth. And so, right. like you said, NASA is really good at sticking the landing, but it has never tried to launch from Mars. And I think a big test of whether human beings will ever be able to do that is if a couple of soil samples can do that first. So I'm going to ask you a question that uh, my mom and I talk about. I'm sure my mom's listening. Hi, mom. Um, which is, if you had the opportunity, would you go into space? I think about this question a lot too, actually. And I talk about it with my other space reporter friends. <laughs> would, you, would you do it though? I mean, if you, if you thought about it a lot, you got to have an answer. Would you do it? I think that I would go to like, one of these suborbital flights to the edge of space You'd let Richard Branson take you there. Oh, God. <laughs> Maybe. Is it, is, are mean, the options Branson or Bezos? And that's it? <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. Because a lot of people forget that when you go to space, there's a lot of stuff that you don't think about. Most people who go to space are puking for the first little while. You know, it's it's a very disorienting thing because you no longer have gravity in, in your ears and various other things. Um, 
I would do it. I would totally do it. I'm not even a, I'm not even a risk taker. I'm not, I I don't even like roller coasters. I won't even go on roller coasters, but I would totally go into space. I feel, yeah, I'm of two minds about it. One, I am a space journalist. And so if I were given the chance, like imagine that dateline on a piece, you know, especially if I'm in orbit, the dateline is from orbit. That is Marina Corinth, space, dateline space. Right. That's an extraordinary um, experience to have. At the same time, there's another part of me that thinks we have a perfectly good atmosphere right here. And, you know, going <laughs> into orbit, going to Mars, I can't bring my cat with me, um, might die. You know, these are important things to think about for everybody. I, You know, I guess for me, it's it goes back to I remember um, listening to an, a number of people. I can't even remember what the source was talking about. You and I are both too young to remember when that very first picture, I can't remember which Apollo mission it came from when when it went around. And then, you know, that yeah, that first picture of space uh, of Earth from space. Earthrise, no, Yeah, Earthrise, 68. There we go. And no one had ever seen that perspective of Earth before. And so you and I are too young to remember what the I guess the, the the psychological effect of that on humanity was seeing that and saying every single thing that happened in all of human history happened on this tiny little thing that I am looking at in this picture. And for me, the if if I had the ability to actually go out and experience that, it's it seems like that's something that I would want to do. Even though I know what it looks like and I've seen all the pictures and I'll be able to watch, you know, I'll be able to see what the surface of Mars looks like next weekend, right? It's still to me the seeing it with your own eyes seems to be something that would be quite special. Yeah, I think it would, uh, for anybody, and, and for me, I think it would profoundly change the way I think about absolutely everything. But maybe yeah. part of my hesitation is that I would then have to put that feeling that I experience when I see that into words. And that seems like a tall order. <laughs> right. It's funny, you know, just this is a this is a total tangent that I may or may not leave in the show, but you used to be a political reporter, and now you're a space reporter. And you say that, you know, it would probably change the way you look at things. I wonder why it is that so many former astronauts end up going into politics. You know, John Glenn went into politics. Uh, here in Canada, our our former governor general was an astronaut, Julie Payette. Uh, one of our uh, federal ministers, Mark Garneau, the first Canadian astronaut in space. Uh, so many astronauts end up going into politics. I wonder why that is. Yeah, and now you have Mark Kelly, uh, senator. Mark Kelly just got now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and the funny thing about that is that when astronauts run for Congress, they often win. You know, people people do like them. And I've talked to a couple of astronauts who haven't run for office, and they say that, you know, when, when you're up there and you see the world as it truly is, you know, just this borderless, beautiful marble against absolute nothingness, you just want to, I think, I forget which Apollo astronaut said it, but he said, so, and I didn't talk to him, but one Apollo astronaut has this great quote. He said that he just... You know, you see that and you just want to grab a politician by the tie and by the shoulders and shake him and be like, look at that. Yeah. Like, that's what matters. That's what's important. And that's what should be influencing your work. I wonder what the breakdown is of political stripe with those who come back and run. I know that uh, I know that the Canadian former astronauts are mostly a little bit on the left, center left. But uh, and I know that Mark Kelly is he's a Democrat, correct? Yes. Yeah. Interesting to see what that. I'm. I'm. There. That. That's a whole other podcast. But it's a fascinating thing to look at, right? And that will do it for this week. Oh, Marina, it has been an absolute delight talking to you. Thank you so much. Do you have any uh, socials that you would like to people to follow you on? Um. I. Well, I'm on Twitter, as everybody. Unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> my handle is Marina Corin. And if there are any people listening that want to talk to me about anything space related. 
anything juicy, any gossip, just, yeah, let me know. I'm here. Okay. Now, I am going to make you an offer that I have not made on any guest ever before on this show, uh, which is that this show is coming out next Tuesday, which is 48 hours before Percy makes his grand old landing on Mars. So... Would you be interested maybe in next weekend just having a quick check-in, a quick 10, 15-minute check-in uh, and recording it so that we can uh, chat about how it went and see what the success rate is and then we can release a tiny little mini episode. Does that sound good? Yeah, that sounds great. All right, listeners. So there you go. Uh, watch this feed and sometime this weekend, you'll probably hear it from greater sources than Marina or I about whether or not it was a success, but we'll be able to break it down hopefully and uh, give uh, our own uh, unique perspective on how uh, how the landing went and, uh, and all that kind of thing. Uh, Marina, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having me. This was really fun. Hey, what's the most interesting thing you've seen on the internet this week? Fact? Article? Something else? We want it. Email us at 3interestingthings at gmail.com. Follow our Instagram at 3, that's the number 3, interesting things. Or tweet it to us at 3interesting. You'll get a shout out on the show. Hey, if you're enjoying the podcast, head on over to Apple Podcasts and give us a rating or review. It really helps people find the show. We'll see you next week.